This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 52. Truth and justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. This episode, at the very least, we are going to be talking about Superman number 17 and Super Sons number 1, both with uh, cover dates of February 15th, 2017. Now, uh, Superman number 17 is promising to be kind of a quick read and a quick overview it is largely a visual comic. There is not a lot of dialogue in it. Um, and I'm going to do my best to kind of paint a picture. But I have a feeling that it's going to be a really short breakdown. And if that's the case, I do have a third uh, issue on deck ready to go to make sure you guys have at least an hour's worth of content um, and these are all really good. Whether we do two or three, these are all really good issues. But before we get to them, as always, I have some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Now, um, last episode, I talked about New Superman and specifically how he is uh, being trained by a Tai Chi master to better manage his own powers. And that has something to do with what I want to talk about today. And if if the universe was a more balanced place, I would have been able to talk about this last week, but the the necessity to talk about it hadn't come up yet. Not that I have to talk about it. I shouldn't say necessity, but um but it's fine. It fits in there more or less. And also this issue, we're going to be talking a lot about John Kent and how he is uh, struggling to find his limits as he comes into his powers. And with that in mind, I also want to talk about finding one, one's limits. And that is as one grows older. Um, I have mentioned before that I am in my late 40s. I am 48 years old as of the time that I am talking about this. And as I'm growing older, as many do, I'm finding myself being able to do less and less of the things that I could when I was younger. And I should start by saying that I was kind of a chunky kid, at least from like ages probably 12 to 15. I was a little bit overweight. Um, part of that is because I was not an athletic kid at all. I wasn't very active. And also because, like I've mentioned before, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and they just kind of let me eat whatever junk food I wanted to eat. And I did not have a very 
well-balanced diet. And when I finally started, it was the second time I began taking martial arts when I was 16, but that was when I really began taking it seriously. And I would go to practice four times a week and I would exercise at home and I would go through katas at home. And by the time I was 17, I was in pretty good shape. And I stayed that way for a while. Um, after my wife and I moved in together, um, we signed up for a gym together and we became each other's gym buddies. And I was in pretty good shape after that. And like I said, I stayed in pretty good shape until about 2003, just shortly before turning 30, where I went from a function of my job where I walked around all day and I carried heavy things and I walked up and down stairs and stuff like that to moving to a desk job. And that's when I started slowly getting out of weight uh, or out of shape and putting on a little bit of weight. And then after a back issue, uh, when I was 30, I began doing yoga to strengthen my back. And I got in actually surprisingly good shape doing yoga. And I did that for a while. And then after my daughter was born and, um, and then as she got a little bit older and I retired early from my job to be kind of the stay at home caretaker. Um, and I started going through some depression. I began drinking a lot more when I was by myself and I put on a whole bunch of weight and I have gotten off, I have gotten down to below where I was before my daughter was born. I am at somewhere between 185 and 195 right now, I think. And, uh, a few months ago or about a year ago, I guess I started doing kettlebell on a very regular basis and just challenging myself to get up, to be able to do 100 two-handed swings with a 30-pound kettlebell a day. And I didn't quite get there, but I did meet my weight goal of 185, which according to everything, for my height, I am six feet tall and my age, again, I'm in my late 40s, my ideal body mass weight is 185. And I did manage to get there very briefly. And then the kettlebells started affecting my knees. And I am to the point now where I cannot go into a full all the way down squat. I, after doing, after switching back to yoga for a few months, I've been able to get back to where I can almost squat all the way back down, but I still have some, some arthritis in my knees. And that sounds so old to say I have arthritis in my knees. Oh my goodness. But I can almost squat all the way back down, like, you know, with my rear end, like touching like the backs of my ankles, right? like I used to be able to do. Um, so I stuck with the yoga for a while and I was doing really good. I couldn't, I, I got back up to around 195. I couldn't quite shake those extra 10 pounds that I put back on, but I was slimming down really nicely. And I guess because I was putting on muscle, but it's not... There is some cardiovascular uh, activity involved in the type of yoga I was doing. I, was, I would switch back and forth to what's called vinyasa yoga, which is where you constantly move from one pose to another. 
and another type of yoga called ashtanga where you where you hold these like challenging poses for a really long time and if you do them long enough they can make you very sweaty and they can make your heart rate grow up and they can make you breathe real hard so there is some cardiovascular component to it but it's not what i was experiencing when i was doing kettlebell regularly so i was i was trimming down tightening up whatever you want to call it but not really losing weight which is okay you know if i'm in that like 190 to 195 range i'm i'm okay but then something happened where i pulled something in my lower back again and it wasn't as bad as it was when i was 30 when i was 30 i was helping my dad carry an armoire upstairs from his basement and something on my back went nope and I couldn't walk for a couple days. It was, I mean, not, you know, not like I crippled myself, but it hurt so bad. I couldn't walk around. I couldn't straighten up all the way. It was, it was rough. But again, which is why I started doing yoga. But something in my lower back um, complained really hard. And it hurt for a few days. And like to the point where, you know, I could get up. I could get, a, get up and move around and stuff. But when I'd roll out of bed in the morning... It was a struggle to kind of like, uh, here we here we go. Uh. So I had to, I'm probably not going to give it up altogether. I'm probably going to go back to it eventually. But for now, I'm having to give up yoga. Because a lot of what I do, a lot of the yoga routines I do, it does involve your lower back. And I think if getting older, my back just couldn't handle the strain. And I was mentioning that to the lady who runs my daughter's homeschool group and she is an older lady and uh because we live in florida and we're surrounded by old people um and she was suggesting that i do tai chi which she does and i really didn't want to i really did not want to do tai chi because when i okay perfectly honest when i was in my late 20s i was fascinated by the idea of tai chi and I'm not saying I've ever uh, necessarily believed in the concept of chi, but I always thought it was really interesting, and I've always had an open mind about certain things. And I'm like, well, you know, if there's some kind of you know, other than physical component to it, that's really cool. And I, I, I was really kind of fixated on that in my late 20s. I thought it was neat from kind of a, like, having been obsessed with comic books since a little kid perspective. But as far as physical stuff was concerned, I didn't think there was much to it. And when I when I was thinking of Tai Chi, I was thinking of old ladies doing the slow motion movements that vaguely resemble martial arts in like the park on a Wednesday morning. And I'm like, man, I don't I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And finally I was like, okay, I'm I am getting more and more out of shape, not being able to do anything. So it's worth a shot. And I'll be honest, it's really fun. Um, I've always been kind of a slow mover. I am not someone who has a lot of hustle in them. I like to walk slowly. I like to do stuff slowly. I like to take my time. I'm very methodical. I'm very meticulous about what I do. But I don't like to rush at all. And so it's kind of neat getting to do this thing that at least has its origins in martial arts and getting to do it slowly. And, you know, as I'm 
<laughs> I don't want to say it. As I'm beginning to accept my limitations as a person who is growing older, I'm having to learn to accept and adopt new ways of doing things. And um, I will admit there is a more strenuous physical component to this than I thought. A lot of it is leg-based. It's going into these kind of deep poses um, that, again, somewhat resemble martial arts stances. There's a lot of twisting involved. Um, there's actually stuff that's done with the arms that has kind of a iso, uh, almost an isometric effect. And I'm actually kind of sore in a good way through my midsection and through my, through my, um, through my upper legs and stuff like that. So if this is, excuse me, if this is what I have to do, it's not that bad. Um, but in still some part of it is always going to be like, well, what kind of exercise do you do? I, I do Tai Chi. Um, kind of like the old ladies in the park. And, you know, if that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do because there's no slowing down the clock and accepting who we are as we progress through life is probably the most important lesson you can learn. And I will keep that in mind as my journey through middle age continues. And those are all the thoughts I have about that. So, uh, with that being said, let's go talk about some comics. Okay, let us get started with Superman number 17, which again is cover dated February 15th, 2017, as will all of the issues that I'll be covering today, so I will skip the cover date from this point out. This issue is written by Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason. We have a first-time artist to the series, Sebastian Fiumara. Uh, David Stewart is the colorist. Rob Lee is the letterer. Fiumara and Stewart did the main cover. And Tony Daniel with Tomeu Mori did the variant cover. And the main cover of this is really cool. It's a blank, yellow, darkish yellow background. And in the foreground, we have a close-up of John and the S symbol part of his hoodie. And then below him is a uh, it was an image of his friend and neighbor Kathy. Behind them is this spooky old house. Growing up out of that is all these tree branches and then a bat and then a a shadowy figure with glowing eyes and then growing out of the of the silhouette created by the trees and the stuff is is a close-up of Superman's face. And it's a really, really cool cover. The variant is a close-up of uh, Clark pulling open his shirt to expose the S symbol as it is getting pounded by bullets. And it's really good. Um, of the two, if I were to get the option... Uh, on the stands, I would go with the main cover, but the but the variant is super cool in and of itself. So we open up in Hamilton County, where the Kent Lane family has been living under the last name Smith for the last while, and we will not be saying that much going forward. Hmm, I wonder what's going on. 
Um, it is nighttime. We see a note pinned to the family refrigerator that says, Dinner in fridge. Don't eat too many snacks. Please be in bed by 10. Love, Mom and Dad. And so Clark is probably off doing, off doing Superman things. Lois is probably off doing Lois Lane things. And John is at home watching a spooky movie. And he is on the sofa with a table full of junk food in front of him. He's wrapped up in a blanket. It looks like he's eating ice cream straight out of the carton. And as the movie crescendos to its spooky scene and the jump scene, there's a bing bong of the doorbell. And John goes, ah! And accidentally lashes out with his heat vision slicing a lamp in two. He goes to the door. We get a really cool, um, really well done splash page of Kathy standing on the porch outside of the door and telling John she needs his help. And John is in his PJs uh, with ice cream all over his face going, huh? So it's a really, really good image. Um, I have not seen this artist's work before. I do not think I've seen it since. But, um, and I don't think they return to this book. But if they did, it would be a, a welcome thing. But it's it's very they have a very thematic artwork. They they do the spooky real good. And we don't get a lot of whole lot of spooky here in Superman. But that's okay. Um so Kathy tells John that Bessie, their prize cow, has busted down her uh part of her pen and pushed open the post and she has gone wandering out and John says, I'll help you look for her. Um but Kathy also says, it's not just Bessie, my grandpa. He went looking for her and hasn't come back, and it's getting dark. And she says that he's been gone almost two hours. Um, Kathy asks John where his mom and dad are. He says, mom's in the city working, and dad's on a business trip. So, yeah, Clark's off on Superman business, and Lois is doing probably Daily Planet stuff. So they get on their bikes, and just, John says, come on. And they, they, they bike out into the field, and... Um, they go to the cow field and they see where Bessie's tracks lead off into the distance toward Dead Man's Swamp. Now, we've seen Dead Man's Swamp really briefly. Um, in a previous issue, John was riding, taking the shortcut home through Dead Man's Swamp by himself. He got startled and he lashed out with his heat vision. And I don't think we've seen it since. But the tracks go well into the... Dead Man's Swamp isn't just a forest. It's a full-on... isn't just a swamp. It's a full-on almost forest. It's big, creepy trees, and some of them are, like, half-uprooted, and we got these big, snarly branches everywhere, and it's pretty rad. And uh, Kathy says this is the last place Bessie would go, but um, the tracks keep going into the woods. So they park their bikes, and they go walking into the woods, and... They're looking around, and that's where Kathy sees this big area where all the trees have been burned down, and the ground, it's so hot, it got turned into glass. And Kathy asks him, wait a minute, is, it, is this what happened? Did you do this? Because she knows about John's heat vision. She doesn't know about his Kryptonian origin. He doesn't. She doesn't know that Clark is Superman, that his mom is Lois Lane. But she knows that John has at least a superpower. You know, as far as she's concerned, he could be similar to Cyclops from the X-Men, where his one power is to shoot energy beams out of his eyes. I know Cyclops doesn't fire heat beams. I know, I know he can't control them. I know. 
but don't don't at me. Uh, you know what I mean. So um, so John is is scared. He he got startled real bad in this forest, in this in these woods, um, and he wants to turn back because he doesn't want to get startled and lash out again. But Kathy says, I know you're scared, but you have to control it, just like you have to control that thing you do with your, before she could say eyes, they hear a snap, and they turn around, and they see this tall, shadowy silhouette of a figure with glowing eyes standing in front of the moon. And the way it's colored, it looks like the light of the moon is coming through the figure's eyes. And John's like, looking for trouble, huh? You've uh, come to the right place. And Kathy says, what are you doing? You can't blast him with your eye beams. You could kill him. And he's like, what does it look like? I'm controlling my fear. He, and he says, there, as she, as Kathy grabs his arm and yanks him. And they go rushing deeper into the swamp. And by now, they have lost Bessie's footprints. And now only her grandpa's footprints are visible. And they say, well, at least we lost that strange guy. But then they turn around and the shadowy figure is there. But now he's like 30 feet tall. He's looming over the trees. And we can kind of see the outline of ribs sticking out. So he's an almost skeletal figure. And Cassie's like, what do we do? And John's like, I don't know. But she, he looks around and I don't remember if John's used his x-ray vision before. But he can he uses it to see through a bunch of trees and to see this big old house. So they go running, and then they're attacked by the giant silhouette of an owl. And then it is a giant owl. And uh, it grabs Kathy's flashlight and crunches it. And then they're attacked by a giant raccoon. And John picks up a branch and whacks the giant raccoon. And then they're jumping over a gigantic snapping turtle. And they're like, why is everything so big? And uh, Kathy says, well, maybe that fog we ran through did something weird to the animals. And then they're attacked by a giant bat, and John knocks over a tree, and the, bat, and the tree falls on the bat. And then they come up to a giant porcupine, and John grabs Kathy and throws her to the ground and shelters her with his body as the porcupine shoots quills at them. And uh, Kathy asks if, if he is hurt, how is he not hurt? And um, she just, he's like, well, I guess I got lucky. So, she, you know, she, he does, Kathy doesn't know about his invulnerability. Um, so they go running and they get to this house. And this thing is massive. This thing's got like 30 outside windows and four porches. And this massive flight of steps that leads up to this bright red door. It looks like something you would see in like a horror movie that takes place in a Louisiana swamp only like if the architect just kept adding on to it and adding on to it and adding on to it and it's very distorted and creepy looking so they pound on the door it's not opening and John kind of you know shoves the door open she's like how'd you do that and he's like oh, I've been working out with my dad so he does she doesn't know about his super strength but just as they get into the living room the the room starts to tilt and all the items in the room begin to attack them, and then the room disappears, and all that's left is this bookcase that's above them. It's spilling books, and they're able to kind of sort of climb the books like a staircase till they reach an actual staircase, and the stairs are falling apart behind them. They reach the upper floor, and there's Bessie, and Bessie just goes, moo, and um, Kathy says that if Bessie's close by, then her grandpa must be close by too. And they start shouting for her grandpa. 
And then the cow stands up on its back legs and shouts, moo! And I thought this was really funny. Um, when I was a little kid, when I, when I was a kid, my grandmother on my dad's side um, was born in, owned, and lived on a cattle farm and had a bunch of cows. And like the field, like her house and her yard was right in the middle of the field. And there was a fence that surrounded the yard. And so the cows would come like right up to the yard. And I was a really sensitive kid. And I was especially sensitive to loud noises. And cows, if you've never been near a lowing cow, they are very loud. And from a small child's perspective, they're very big. So I was terrified of cows as a small child. And I got out of that fear by the time I was in the double digits. But I remember in high school, I used to write these stories that were, they were kind of like me and my two buddies as superheroes, but it was, they were also kind of superhero parody stories, kind of like the stuff like The Tick or maybe Madman a little bit. And I had this one story where the bad guys of the story were this was this motorcycle gang of um, anthropomorphic cows. <laughs> and so, that, and so they, they stood on their hind legs and they had piercings through their udders and they wore leather jackets because they were, they were just that evil, right? And uh, I thought it was really funny. And so that's what that reminds me of. But then some, <laughs> then Bessie is like 80 stories tall, still inside the house, and she vomits milk. And the milk, like, washes them back down the stairs. And they look up, and the giant skeletal silhouette rips the roof off the house. And they go running out of the house, and they hide down in the well. And uh, John is holding on to the rope, and his feet are on the bucket, and Kathy is holding on to John's neck. And Kathy, or not Kathy, um, Bessie looks over <laughs> over the rim of the, of the well and goes, Moo? Then Kathy's grandpa shows up and he's like, what are you crazy kids doing down there? Like, um, any sign of a 50 foot shadow man? And Kathy's grandpa's like, not that I can see. I'm bringing you up. And, um, there's a very cute scene of John looking back over his shoulder and saying, I got you, Kath. And Kathy closing her eyes and putting her head on John's shoulder and says, I know, John. It's very sweet. And so they get out of the well and... Kathy's grandpa, whose name is Cobb, I believe. Cobb's his first name. I forget what their last name is. He's got a rope around Bessie's neck, and the kids have their bikes, and they're walking back out of the swamp. And John's saying, we saw some crazy stuff. And Kathy's grandpa says, that swamp, it's that swamp. I told Kathy not to go in there, especially when you don't know your way around. Some of those bogs emit gases. Breathe it, and you can start hallucinating, warp visions and all, which, from what you both said, seems exactly what you got hit with. And John's like, yeah, I guess. And Kathy's like, yeah, I guess. And so Kathy goes home with her grandpa. And John rides his bike back home. And he runs inside. He, uh, he runs upstairs. He gets in the shower. He puts on his jammies. He flumps in bed just as Lois and Clark show up. And they peek in. And they said, oh, he, you know, he's in bed. What a responsible kid. Yeah, I bet he ate a bunch of ice cream, though. And we see John peeking out from under the blanket looking like, ha I got away with it. But then out in the field, we see Cobb's silhouette, 
and we know it's Cobb because he has the same kind of glasses, but now he is outlined just like the Shadow Man from earlier in the issue. And it says that next, we're going to be starting Superman Reborn. And I've mentioned before that I really like it when a writer who's who's either in the middle of an arc, or is about to start an arc, or is just starting an arc, is, um, or has a editorially mandated story thrust upon them, and they're able to use the elements of that story to kind of boost their own story. Um, Tomasi and Gleason do not get an opportunity to do this. This is setting the groundwork for something that they'll be picking back up after Superman Reborn, but the theme of Superman Reborn is so vastly different from what's going on here um, that there's no way that they could have continued it. Um, they could have incorporated what they were going to do, what the, what we'll be reading about very, very shortly in Superman Reborn. In fact, I think we'll be starting it in two weeks, which I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, but yeah, this is a really fun issue. Um, not a ton to it. Um, looking at my timer now, it's only taken me 15 minutes to get through this issue. So I will be using that third comic. Um, there's not a whole lot left to say about this. Just the art is fantastic. I'll be posting some pictures on Twitter. Um, there's, but there's just not much to narratively to the story other than, whoa, that was some, some bonkers stuff, but it does all kind of tie into stuff that will be going on in this title after Superman Reborn. So uh, let's pause here and then we will um, go talk about Super Sons number one. All right, Super Sons number one is written just by Peter Tomasi. No Patrick Gleason assisting on this one. The art is by Jorge Jimenez, one of my favorite artists. Yay! Alejandro Sanchez is the colorist, and Rob Lee is the letterer. Jimenez and Sanchez did the main cover, and Dustin Nguyen did the variant. Uh, Dustin Nguyen, by the way, is, I believe... If I'm not mistaken, the uh, an, the inker who is I most associate with uh, Doug Mankey's uh, pencils. But the main cover is of uh, John and Damian Wayne in their respective superheroic identities. With John more so in the forefront, uh, it looks like he's flying forward, but knowing what John's limitations are at this time, he's probably just jumping. And then Damien is flying behind him on a Robin-themed hover bike. And John has like this, yay, look on his face. And Damien looks like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> very descriptive, I know. he. John looks enthusiastic and um, Damien looks uh, enthusiastically malicious. And then behind them, we have the an images of the image of their fathers in their heroic uh, respective heroic identities as well, and it's just a just a blank um, orange fading to yellow background behind them. And it's really really good cover. I like it a lot. The variant is a blank white background, and then we have John and Damien in their superhero suits. They look much younger. They look like they're about eight, 
and it's a very cartoony style. Um, it almost looks like it's been done in colored pencil. It's really cute, but I would go with the Jimenez cover. Um, I like it better, and I just really, really like Jorge Jimenez. So we open with this family that I have not seen before. Um, they may be familiar to to New 52 Justice League readers. Um, but we'll find out more about who these people are. We have a mom and a dad and a sister and two brothers. And dad and the sister and one of the brothers are all redheads. And mom and the other brother, other brother, um, have black hair. And they're sitting around what looks like a very, um, almost sterile living room. Um, everything's very, very geometric. The, f the furniture is, um, I know it's, it's almost, it's not art deco, but it's very minimalistic is probably what I'm going for. And they're watching something on TV and the red haired son asks, uh, who is Reggie asks Archie, the other son, can I have some of your popcorn? And, um, Archie's like, but you already ate all your popcorn and, and Reggie's like, uh, excuse me? And Archie's like, sure, Reggie, uh, how'd the whole bowl? And then Reggie goes, Mom, my feet are cold. And so she puts a blanket. He has his feet propped up on a, on a stool, and she puts a blanket over his legs. And then he asks his sister Sarah if she'll fluff up a pillow behind his head. And then he asks if he can borrow the car. And this kid looks like he's maybe 13 at the most, maybe 14. And he's like, and the dad's like, sure, son, you want me to take and have it washed first? And Reggie says, you guys are the best. How about a group hug? And they all kind of look like, what? And he shouts, I said group hug. At which we get a pull out and we see that the living room is more like a TV set. Uh, it doesn't have a roof. It has a cross section of lights and wires and there's, and there's cameras outside and, and lights and it's very artificial, and we have cameras pointing in, and we see a lot of view monitors. So, I, very interesting setup here. Well, if we go from there, and this is that um, what's happening next is happening right now. It's happening presently. And so, we see John and Damien running through the woods, or more specifically, uh, John is running with Damien holding on to his, holding on to John's back, and, um, John's like, how'd you get me into this mess? And Damien's like, well, I gave you all the information you needed to have. And John's like, I needed more information than that. And Damien's like, too bad. Cry, baby. And so um, Damien says, put me down. We're done running. And they turn around and they face their attackers, which are a bunch of Superboy and Robin-themed robots. And John you know, gets down into a fighting stance with a grin of determination on his face. And Damien has some some sh bat shuriken ready to hurl. And uh, Damien says, it's time for Robin and Superboy to take a stand. And John says, how come your name goes first? And Damien says, I'm older. And John says, I'm taller. And Damien says, shut up. So from there, we go to Hamilton County two days earlier. And so we see John in the morning walking through the snow, waiting for the bus. And the bus pulls up, and we see this funny-looking old man is driving the bus. And John asks, where's the regular driver? And the bus driver says, well, he's out sick. I'm filling in today.
and John goes and sits next to Kathy, and they're talking, and they look over, and we see, we see where two bullies are shooting spit wads at the seat on the at the kid in the seat in front of them. Now, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the plot, but um, the fact that they're way out in the country and it's a couple white kids picking on a black kid is, you know, telling. I, like I said before, I grew up out in the country. Um, even the kids that I went to school with were racists as all get out. And the, one or, and the two or three black kids in our school got a lot of hell from these mean, racist, white kids out in the country. And it could just be, it that might not have been intentional with the way this was rendered, but felt pretty, you know. I, something I saw on a, on a pretty regular basis when I was a kid growing up out in farmland. And uh, I gotta say, right, riding the bus out in farmland sucks. Or then when I was a kid anyway. So John gets up and he's not gonna he's not gonna put up with this and so he tells the kids with the spitwads to knock it off and they're like or what and then they shoot all the spitwads at him so he goes and sits back down and he's got you know spitwads stuck to his glasses now so later that day school lets out and uh, the kid who's getting picked on Alan he's hanging out with John and Kathy and and Kathy's like and John's like excuse me. Alan is like, what are you doing, John? And John's like, I am making a snowball of perfect consistency. And he's like, why? He's like, to go go have a snowball fight. Let's go get someone named Olivia and choose sides. And uh, the bullies from the bus plus one other kid. So don't worry about sides. We've already picked ours. And John says, all right, then let's have a snowball fight. And uh, John and his friends threw their snowballs. The bullies get whacked with snowballs. They're like, oh, yeah, well, this will be more interesting. So they throw their snowballs, who hit Alan in the head, and they realize that there's rocks in the snowballs. And so now the bullies are using actual weapons. And uh, and um, John asks Kathy if she's okay. And she's like, yeah, one of the, you know, bounced off her big puffy jacket. And now the bullies are picking up even bigger rocks and getting ready to throw them. And John's like, pick on my friends, will ya? And he takes off his glasses and we see his eyes start to glow red. And he just closes his eyes and sighs and puts his glasses back on. Like, man, I can't do that. And so he and his friends, they back up against the wall. And John tells his friends to protect their faces as the bullies get ready to throw rocks at them. Now, when I was John's age here... And John's probably like 12 at the most. I probably wouldn't have thought of this. Me now thinks if you're being attacked by someone with a distance weapon and you don't have a distance weapon, you need to close the distance to take their advantage away. Maybe you'll get hit, maybe you won't. But if you stand there against the wall, you'll almost definitely get hit. But, you know, to be fair, when I was in middle school, I probably would not have thought of that. Um... But then before the bullies can toss their snowball rocks, a giant snowball falls off the roof and lands on the kids. And John looks up and sees the old man bus driver standing there. And so um, John tells his friends to go get on the bus. He'll be joining them in a minute. John runs around the side of the building, and there's the old man bus driver there. And John says, what are you doing at my school? And the bus driver says, I was bored. I wanted to see how the other half lives. And then Damien takes off the bus driver mask, and we see that he's wearing hydraulic lift shoes. And um, 
and um, John says, well, how do I live? And Damien says, not sure yet, but I did get to put the hurt on some bullies. Now, <laughs> if Damien had been a character when I was in high school, and if Damien had been written like this, Damien would have probably been my favorite character at the time. Um, I went through a phase in high school where I was getting really tired of the grim and gritty stuff really fast. Um, and I, be I became really fixated on what I thought of good-natured chaos goblins. I went through this phase where I was really into the Dragonlance novels. And one of my favorite characters from Dragonlance was this character called Tasselhoff. And he was a halfling. Kind of like hobbits, only like more agile. And they carried these like slingshot staffs. And, you know, while the other members of the party were off sword fighting and shooting magic blasts at the goblins or whatever, this character Hasselhoff would like run around and play vicious pranks, like dangerous pranks on whatever they were fighting. And then he'd run away giggling, which I thought was really funny. I loved Speedball in The New Warriors. Um... Um, I had another example in mind that I can't think of off the top of my head, but stuff like that I thought was really, really fun. And, you know, I like the fact, or, you know, I like Damien now. Damien is the reason that I'm going back and I'm catching up on reading Batman from pretty much like the early 2000s on. I want to get the setup. I want to read the setup that eventually leads up to Infinite Crisis with Brother Eye and all that. But then I really want to read where Morrison takes over the title and introduces Damien. And I'm reading New 52 Batman and all that, all that good stuff. Um, yeah, a, a, a good-natured chaos goblin who also has a mean streak and likes to pick on bullies uh, would have been right up my alley in high school. If, it had been written, if this had been written when I was in high school in the early 90s, then Damien probably been, would would have been written with like giant spikes on his shoulders and a huge gun. So <laughs> I'm glad he wasn't. But uh, regardless, um, Damien also pulls out another mask. And uh, John says that that was their substitute teacher for the day. And, you know, he basically went through a whole class, you know, faking all the information he gave to the kids. And Damien says, um, I didn't make up anything. I could have had a doctorate in geology geology at seven years old. And John says, why didn't you? And Damien says, because my mother had my professor dump, because my, because my mother killed my professor and dumped him in the ocean. And John's like, ha ha, yeah, right. And Damien's just looking at him like, mm. and we get this cute, like, sheepish look from John. And so the two of them go back and get on the bus and Damien's driving the bus and he says, it's perfectly fine. I've been driving since I was five. And uh, as John gets on the bus, he tells him to go find his seat, kid. So later on, at Wayne Manor, we see uh, Damien doing some training. He's throwing uh, bat shuriken at a dummy. Uh, Bruce is in, dressed up as Batman. He's about to go out. Damien does a flip. He uses Alfred's head as a... As a as a pivot point, which Alfred does not appreciate, he says, "You are you are so not welcome, Master Damien." And uh, Damien goes and starts putting on the rest of his Robin costume, and Batman's like, "Nope, um, you blew off your home study session." And Alfred says, "You're behind on five homework assignments." And Damien's like, "It doesn't matter. I know everything already." And Batman says, "You still don't know enough to do what's required when I require it." 
and uh, Damien accuses him of being unreasonable, and Batman tells him, did you give me a word about your studies? Damien says yes, and Batman says, so keep it. Now, juxtaposed to that, we see John at home playing uh, playing poker with his mom and dad, and they're playing for, like, potato chips, and um, John is telling his parents about what happened with the bullies, and he said he didn't know what else to do. He wanted to use his powers just a little, but he didn't. And um, he says, well, maybe I did throw one of the stones ball pretty hard after they threw the rocks. And um, Clark says, you did exactly what your mom and I expect of you. And they go on and talk about how someone else who saw John stick up for Alan will stick up for somebody else. And it will be this domino effect. And, and it's, it was a good thing. And it's a good juxtaposition between Damien saying, I don't need to study. I already know any, I already know everything. And John saying, I didn't know what else to do, admitting he is still learning the ropes. And uh, the card game ends when Lois throws down her three aces and Clark's Justice League um, alarm goes off. And there's a really cool shot of him opening his shirt, taking off his glasses, kissing Lois, gotta go, giving John a kiss on the forehead, said, gotta go, leaping, love ya, and then swoosh, and takes off, and the, the cards are swirling around him as he flies out of the house. And it's a really cool shot. I like it a lot. Um, and Lois says, well, that's your cue for bedtime, young man. So John puts on his jammies, and he goes upstairs, and he gets in bed, and Damien is, has snuck into his room, and he says, hope you remember to floss, Johnny boy. And we get this really funny exchange between the two of them because John jumps up on his bed and his eyes are lit up and he, and he says, I could have blasted you. And Damien says, and I would have dodged your blast and incapacitated you with a well-placed kick to the solar plexus. And John says, well, I would have dodged your kick and knocked you out with a left hook. So it's kind of like a, um, yeah, and we're playing superheroes and I shot you with a laser blast. Well, yeah, well, I blocked your laser blast and then I did a ninja roundhouse kick at your head. I just thought it was really funny. And Lois hears them bickering and comes in and Damien has snuck out the window and John is pretending like he's just on his laptop. And uh, when she leaves, they continue their conversation and uh, Damien tells John that there's been an assorted break-ins and hacking attempts in the LexCorp facilities and Damien wants to go investigate and he wants John to come along. And uh, he asked, he asked John, so what's your name? And John says, it's Jonathan Kent. You know that. And Damien says, no, it's Superboy, which means it's time to forget going to bed on time and be super. So we next see them jumping and swinging across rooftops. They have neared the LexTor, the LexCorp building. Um, <laughs> and um, John tells him to jump on and we'll piggyback across. Damien says, I've managed to move across cities and landscapes without your assistance long before you had an S on your chest. Let's go. And he shoots a grapple line. And uh, he and John are climbing up the side of the building. But then from off panel, someone says, horrible weather for breaking and entering. And they turn around. And from his perspective, we see Lex Luthor's reflection in the glass behind them. It's a really good shot. It's a really good splash page. Uh, really very, very fun issue. I love the dynamic between John and Damien. Um, I, I did not have the experience of 
of reading John as a younger kid as it was coming out month to month, so I didn't have the attachment to it. But I do really appreciate their dynamic, and I can see why some people are less than thrilled that that dynamic has changed because of John being aged up in the Bendis run, um, which we will be talking about eventually. <laughs> um, but I, I do really like this issue. Uh, I have not read a lot of this series. I think I made it through the first arc and then kind of dumped it just because I was streamlining, stream, streamlining my reading rotation at the time. But I think what's going on with this kid who's controlling his family and then just the, the dynamic of, of how John and Damien approach superheroing from very different perspectives is a lot of fun. Um, not a whole lot else to say about the issue, though. So what I'm going to do is I am going to run an ad. And when we come back, we are going to talk about Trinity number six. Stay tuned. Okay. Trinity number six is written and drawn by Francis Manipool. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It is scripted by Francis Manipool. Emanuela Lupacino did the pencils. Ray McCarthy and Matt Santorelli did the inks. Hi-Fi did the colors. Steve Wands did the letters. Um, Manipool did the main cover. And Bill Sienkiewicz did the variant. So the main cover is of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman um, kind of attacking this barrier that is separating them from their civilian identities. It's like a, like a sheet of glass almost. And Superman's punching it, and Wonder Woman is driving her sword into it, and Batman is attacking it with like a drill. And it's a pretty good cover. Um, the the Sienkiewicz um, variant is bonkers. So it's Wonder Woman and Batman looking on in horror as Superman, who's hovering just a few feet off the ground, is doing like that Doctor Strange thing from Infinity War where he's where he's looking at all the different realities at once, his head's going you know, shaking all different directions. Only it's like it's doing that all at once. It's not it's not like an a a thing of motion almost. It's like these multiple realities of his face imposed over each other. It is it is intense. I don't know if I would necessarily want it, but it is it is hardcore. Um, I do like it. It's pretty neat. I don't know which of these covers I, I would prefer, honestly. I, I do like Manipul as an artist, but you can't not respect Bill Sienkiewicz. So, um, as a recap, and you know, that's part of the reason the last two comics coverages were kind of short, is because there was really no need to do a recap on either one of them, um, Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman have all been captured in the Black Mercy plant by Poison Ivy on the Kent slash Smith farm in the family barn. And they were all, their consciousnesses were taken into the dream world of the Black Mercy and 
Clark experienced this. They all they all experienced each other's dream. And so Superman's dream that Batman and Wonder Woman also went along for were um, of an encounter with his father and with his younger self. And uh, Batman's dream was where he comforted comforted his younger self so much shortly after his parents' death. And Wonder Woman's dream was that she took the two of them with her to Themyscira, um, encountered her own younger self, and um, stayed with Superman and Batman when her mother banished the two of them to, like, the underworld. At what, after, and after going through the underworld, they discovered that they, um, the architect of everything that's happening to them in the dream world is Mongol. And the, the way that the, all these dreams are happening is that the Mongol himself is trapped in the Black Mercy dream world. And the Black Mercy has created a child for Mongol that looks like a, a childlike version of Mongol who is able to give a person what they need inside the Black Mercy. And meanwhile, we saw that through her own connection to the green, Poison Ivy was able to enter the Black Mercy's dream world on her own, where she encountered that child at some point in the past. And even though the child is is rendered as being gender neutral, uh, Poison Ivy views the child as a girl, calls her, you know, calls the child she, and calls her her daughter. Um, and she was, Poison Ivy was banished from the dream world by Mongol. And she knows that Poison Ivy set up the Black Mercy because she knew there was this source of solar energy at the Kent farm. And so she lured them in there. She captured Bruce, Clark, and Diana. And she believes that her the child will be able to use one of them to cross over into the real world. Um, either by possessing one of them or somehow manifesting the energy to come through physically. Mongol, in the meantime, wants to use them as a conduit to enter the real world himself. And so we open this issue with the child who calls itself the White Mercy, explaining to Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman how the experiences of the three of them inside the dream world has taught the child how to feel and how to understand the the concept of caring for for other people what's implied in that to me is that before this the child didn't really care about poison ivy it was uh feigning affection for poison ivy in kind of a sociopathic way because of course it's it's template is mongol but now it has truly learned to care and um it wants to help Batman and Wonder Woman get out. Now, Superman's consciousness is no longer showing up. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It is showing up in the dream world, but it's Superman's body that Mongol has possessed. And so out in the real world, um, we see that that Batman, it looks like Batman and Wonder Woman have woken up. Because in this one shot, their eyes are open. And I don't think that's supposed to be the case. I think that was an artistic mistake. 
But Superman's eyes are definitely open. Or Clark's eyes are definitely open. They're glowing red. And Mongol, having taken full possession of Clark's body, has reached out with his left hand. He's wrapped it around Poison Ivy's body. And, um, and Poison Ivy realized that she's been had. She says that they made a deal. And Mongol, in Clark's body, says, You are a fool, Poison Ivy. You seek to be united with that which is not real. The White Mercy was created for one purpose, to get me what I needed, to be free. And Ivy argues, no, she was created for you to love. That's what saved me from oblivion. And Mongol laughs that she calls the child she and says, your sentiments betray you. It does not feel. It does not desire. It most certainly does not love. And uh, Lois grabs John runs to the corner of the barn and says, okay, John, remember that thing I told you not to do around the house? And John says, I got this, Mom. And we see Clark's body go flying out of the barn and we'll see in a bit that it was John unleashing his heat vision which in retrospect does make sense um, and we see Clark's inside the dream world we see Superman fall out of the sky onto this pile of bones that are all dressed in different variations of Superman's outfit we saw in the previous issue where while being trapped in the Black Mercy the 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 dream that the Black Mercy was giving Mongol over and over and over again was just killing Superman, killing different versions of Superman until the White Mercy um, showed up. But the White Mercy tells Batman and Wonder Woman that um, that the Black Mercy now that Mongols in Clark's body is going to start draining away his life force and draining away his mind. It says, this world will consume his mind as my father takes over his body and offers to help. And Batman's like, no, we don't want your help. This is all your fault to begin with. Um, and whether you care or not, you've made yourself the enemy. And Wonder Woman tells him to back off. She's like, this isn't like you to lash out at a child. And Wonder Woman also calls the White Mercy she. So even if... Um, I'm not... Nope. <laughs> I'm not going to trip myself up with that one. The White Mercy identifies as she. And we're going to leave it there. Because I almost went somewhere accidentally that might have might have stepped on it, might have stuck my foot in my mouth. But ha, I had no foot in my mouth. You got that right. Um, so uh, the White Mercy, it, it again talks about the experiences, the the... It experienced what Clark, Diana, and Bruce all experienced in his visions. And we see an image of Superman with um, his father, with, with Jonathan, when he was still alive. He said, I experienced the joy in Superman's heart from reuniting with his father. I knew the loyalty Wonder Woman displayed by choosing her friends over her own personal paradise. And we just see Wonder Woman just standing in front of this amphitheater on Themyscira. And we see Batman standing on the hood of a car hugging his younger self, saying, And you, Batman, I felt the weight of your regret, but also the strength that you drew from that trauma. I felt all of it. And then the White Mercy says, The entire spectrum of my emotions, which my father considered a weakness, I now realize made you all stronger. I experience your heartbreak, your fails and triumphs, and what you do in its aftermath. I envy your ability to love outside of yourself and act selflessly. My goal was to study the three of you, but in doing so, you helped me understand what it's like to be human, to be real. And Batman says, okay, well, if you want to help, what do you propose? 
and um, uh, she says, I will not take your body by force. I can feel Wonder Woman's trust growing in her part to play as in here. Yours is out there. Will you let me in, Batman? And um, back outside in the real world, we see John's eyes glowing with heat vision energy. That's how we know that that's what blasted Clark out of the house, which, again, makes sense because he's still coming into his strength and he's nowhere as strong as his dad. We see that not only did he smash him out of the house, he smashed smashed him out of the barn, but he smashed him partly into uh, the family home. And uh, Poison Ivy's there saying, nice shot, kid. Small town folks, big town secrets, huh? And um, we see Clark's body get up and the Black Mercy still attached to Clark's chest. That's the conduit that Mongol's using to possess his body. And uh, Clark, Clark's body, Mongol, jumps into the air. He comes flying down toward them. But before he can smash them, Bruce's body comes from off panel and shoves everyone out of the way. And Poison Ivy says, Bruce Wayne. And Bruce's body says, no, Mom, it's me. And we see that his eyes are glowing yellow. He says, so this is the real world. And um, inside the White Mercy, the Superman's dream body and Batman's dream body are both unconscious. And Wonder Woman is carrying both of their bodies through this field of skulls. And laying on the ground in the skulls is an image of Steve Trevor. And Wonder Woman is saying to herself, Hang on, my friends. The White Mercy's instructions were, were clear. I have to follow my heart to our path of escape. And um, the, the dream Steve Trevor is saying, Help us, Diana. Please stay with me. I need you, Diana. I, I like Wonder Woman. I really do. I like Wonder Woman a lot. I like, I especially like New 52 Wonder Woman. I, knowing that New 52 Superman is a component of the pre-crisis, no, pre-Flashpoint Superman and not, oh, whoops, <laughs> I'm getting into stuff I shouldn't talk about yet because we haven't gotten Reborn. Never mind. Let's just say I like New 52 Wonder Woman. I'm trying really, really hard to like Rebirth Wonder Woman. But so much of it involves Steve Trevor, and I just don't care about Steve Trevor. I don't like Steve Trevor. I was, I'm really hoping that DC eventually lets Wonder Woman be bisexual and more than just name only. And not just say, yep, I've been with a lot of girls. But actually give her a girlfriend in modern continuity. That would be really cool. And I don't like Steve Trevor. So she keeps marching on through the field of skulls. And... My app just closed. There we go. Open it back up. And they march on and they come out of it into this meadow where Ivy and the White Mercy used to live together inside um, the dream world. And the White Mercy says, this is where my mother taught me how to create life. There you will find hope. There the truth will set you free. And we see in the outside world that Mongol in Superman's body has like the family truck lifted over, over his head and uh, uh, the white mercy in Bruce's body is, is saying, you know, is defiantly saying, you know, we won't, you know, we won't die today, father, not ever. And Poison Ivy says, so does this being, does possessing Bruce Wayne's body give him superpowers? She says, not exactly, but there are people here who prepare for anything. 
and he takes a chunk of kryptonite on a necklace out from his shirt and holds it up, which causes Mongol tremendous pain. And Lois is not happy about the fact that Bruce brought kryptonite to the family farm. And she says, I've ne and John says, I've never seen that. I've never seen dad react that strongly to kryptonite before. And I don't think they, they don't go into why that is the case, but I think it's become because Clark has been exposed to it a lot. And he has been able to work through the pain of it, work through the weakness of it. And it's a completely new experience to Mongol. And it makes Mongol and Superman's body pass out. And uh, Poison Ivy says, it works. Wait, this means dot, dot, dot. And so she has figured out that the tall, muscular white man with black hair who has super strength and can fly and has heat beams come out of his eyes and is vulnerable to kryptonite just might be Superman. So Lois rips the Black Mercy off of Clark's body. We see the Superman dream body disappear from the dream world. Um, outside, um, White Mercy is talking to Ivy through Bruce's body. And, um, and she's saying, you know, I... I understand love now and I can't, you know, I, as much as I love you, I can't steal another person's body from you. And uh, she says, you won't suffer any heartache, mother. Through my connection to the green, I will make you forget. And um, she says, remember what you taught me. Mother Earth always finds a way to survive and then rips the black mercy off of Bruce's body, which causes Batman's dream self to disappear from the dream world. And Wonder Woman says, Batman has awoken. They're both safe. My ability to see the truth will set me free. And we see her ripping herself out of the Black Mercy in in the family barn, which is really cool. I don't think, I don't know if Superman's ever torn himself free of the Black Mercy through willpower alone, but I think it's awesome that Wonder Woman can. Um... And outside, uh, Poison Ivy has no idea how she got there. She has no memory of anything that's happened. So Superman's secret is safe. Um, she probably would have pieced together that Bruce was Batman if given enough time. I know I brought this up in previous issues. Um, and so that is a nice, tidy ending to that. So later we see... Um, Clark and Diana and Bruce sitting around uh, a table in the barn, looking out through the hole that John smashed through the barn with, you know, shooting Clark out with the heat vision. And Lois is narrating, saying, We hide behind walls of our own making, built from the bricks of our past. They get so high you can't see what's on the other side, even for a man who can fly. It casts a shadow over all of our lives. But all you need is one little crack to let the light in. And Diana and Bruce are uh, are joking that they should leave the hole in the barn for them to sit and look out through. And Clark is saying it might be a little bright for Bruce. And Bruce is saying, no, it's perfect. And later on, we see Clark and Lois um, walking along the edge of the cornfield. John is riding next to them on his bicycle. Lois' narration says, I can't predict... What this world has in store for my husband, my son, and myself. 
But if we let the right people in, we won't have to pay for the loan from strangers to friends, from friends to family. And then we see that a small figure the size of a small child who looks like it is made out of thorny plants is emerging from the cornfield. And that, I assume, is, and it has longish white hair, and I assume that that is the new form of the White Mercy, which is pretty neat. I don't know if we ever see the White Mercy again. I have not read past the next two issues of the series, but I am enjoying it immensely, and I am looking forward to, well, I know what comes immediately next, but I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next in the long term for this book so excellent story um we will see mongol again in uh, about two months i think so that'll be pretty neat it does pick up with him still being in the in the black mercy so pretty pretty fun story um i i do think it's neat that our um, immediate arc has a ostensibly Batman villain and a Superman villain teaming up. We don't have a Wonder Woman component in it yet, but we will certainly get that in the next issue, which we will be talking about in just a few weeks. So uh, that is it for all the comics of this episode. So give me just a moment and I'll be right back to wrap everything up. And that does it for episode 52 of Truth, Justice, and Hope, a Superman podcast. You know, some part of me kind of sort of wanted to do a new 52-themed uh, episode in this one, um, but I've, I've gone off the rails too many times in the past few weeks. I want to just stay on track with Rebirth, which, of course, all, all comes out of New 52, so I guess it's all kind of sort of New 52-themed. Um, but anyway, I hope you enjoyed me talking about these three issues as much as I enjoyed talking about them. I, I, I recognize in retrospect that they all came out shorter just because I didn't have as many tangents to go off on. Uh, I don't know if that's just the, the events in the issues didn't make me think of anything tangent worthy or maybe I'm just tired. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, uh, if you did enjoy what I'm doing here on the show, and if you'd like to help sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. Over there, I put out uh, roughly one episode a week where I talk about uh, a single issue of my favorite classic post-crisis Superman stories. As I'm putting, as this episode is coming out, the newest episode of the Patreon should be coming out where I'll be covering the last two stories, or the last two issues before I get to Superman number 75, the uh, the actual death of Superman. So that's a pretty good time. So if you're a fan of 90s Superman comics and you want to get in on the action, just sign up. It's $3 a month and you get about four issues or four episodes a month for your money. And, um, I should be getting some new, um, Patreon tier payment options 
pretty soon. Uh, I don't have an exact date on that, but pretty soon I should be coming out with some new options. Um, another way you can support the show is leaving me a five-star five star review wherever you get your podcast. That does help immensely with helping other people find the show. Uh, if you'd like to check me out on social media, there is a Truth, Justice, and Hope a Superman podcast Facebook page. I'm on Instagram at about, no, excuse me, at Truth, Justice, and Hope. And I do the majority of my shenanigans still on Twitter at about Superman. Facebook and Instagram, I mostly just use to put out new issue notifications and updates and things like that. But I spend the majority of my internet time on Twitter. Even, and I, I've curated my, my feed well enough by now that, that uh, bad stuff generally does not show up on my feed. So it's a pretty good time. Um, next week, we are going to have an all-Superman episode. Um, no, no side characters, no, you know, no John. Well, I mean, John's going to be in the story, but it's, you know, John's not the focus, Kenan's not the focus, Kara's not the focus, Lana's not the focus. It's all, it's all Superman all the time. Next episode, as we talk about Action Comics number 974, which is the final part of the prelude to Superman Reborn. And then uh, Superman number 18, which is actually part one of Superman Reborn. And I have been looking forward to talking about the story since the show started. And I cannot wait to talk to you guys about it. But until then, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love ya.